foundations and trusts are different. They tend to be mission-driven. They tend to have a point of view, something they're trying to fund. And your big task before you go to the big pain of writing a foundation proposal is just make sure that your project really fits within their guidelines. That's easy to do online. This does not take a lot of work anymore. It used to be much, much harder. Look at what the foundation has funded recently. Look at what their guidelines are. See if you fit in before you do the application. And before you apply to any corporation or trust, please submit to people you know, your best friends and your board, a list of the foundations and corporations you want to go to, a list of their top executives, and very importantly, a list of their board members. This is all available online. How many of you routinely at board meetings give your board a list of the foundation, the trust or corporate leaders and board members that you're soliciting? Not enough of you. Okay. This is a great way to use your board. You'll be surprised. You give them a list of 40 names, you'll see surprises. A couple of your board will say, oh, I know this person, oh, I know that person, or my brother works with this person, or my sister-in-law is a lawyer for that person and you start to find a better prospector to go to that. Okay? Just do this routinely. It's really simple to do. It's all online. It takes no time whatsoever. Just to print it out, make a list, hand it out. I mentioned that individuals were becoming a bigger part of donor, the donor base here in England, which is great. I like to separate out my members program. Again, that's the lower level gifts from what I call my major gifts program, were my bigger gifts. And I, can tr I separate them because I can afford to spend differently on soliciting them. If someone's giving me 30 pounds a year or 50 pounds a year, I can't spend that much. In fact, it surprises me how many people spend more per donor than they get in, and it bothers me when they do that. Hmm? Individuals, let's start with members. Individuals, we're on rule 12 for those who are following along value experiences more than stuff. Please don't waste a lot of time or energy or money to make mugs, umbrellas, t-shirts, or hats. People don't need another mug. They really don't need another mug. And the amount of time and energy and money it costs to make the mug, to put it in a box, address it, go to the post office, send it out, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time, and a lot of times it breaks anyway. And what people so much more value are experiences. You know, the things we do in our everyday life, in our fields, that others would pay lots to do, like come to a rehearsal, see a, a, a take-in in a theater, watch an exhibition be hung, hear from a curator. All kinds of things that we take for granted are really wonderful experiences. The way we got the 26,000 Friends of Covent Garden was simply they each got to come to a general rehearsal. And that to them was the most exciting thing. They also got early ticket buying and all kinds of other things, but the big one was the general rehearsal pass. Bring people into your organization. Let them experience the art. I love bringing my major donors backstage for, for a performance, for one act of a ballet, for instance. I love Nutcracker because, you know, in the snow scene, the snowflakes are so beautiful and they're dancing and they come off stage and all the paper snow is coming in their mouths and all they do is spit it out. For, for someone to see that, they all of a sudden get a different view of the whole field. And to come to a rehearsal and watch these wonderful dancers trying and striving for, 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 for perfection 
We've done some things with orchestra. We'll, we'll actually, obviously with the musician's permission, take a group of donors and let them sit in the orchestra for a rehearsal. And just what they, what they hear and what the role of the conductor is, is just astonishing to people. Most people don't know what the conductor does. They think the conductor's a metronome. And, and they don't know what it's like to sit in that amazing symphony orchestra to hear this music. Think about what you can do to give an experience. That's what's really going to make people want to be part of your organization. And for your major donors, you've got to evaluate why they really want to be a big donor. And I find there are four main reasons why people want to be big donors to an organization. One, and the ones we love the most, are the ones who love our art. That's the easiest ones. And those ones are great. All we do is we say, here's all the wonderful things we're planning. You're going to love it. Come along with us. I wish they were the majority of funders. I don't think they are, to a question you asked before. Number two are those who love to meet and talk to artists. I'm doing a big musical right now at, at the Kennedy Center. Um, and it's called Follies by Stephen Sondheim. It has a wonderful cast with wonderful main people like Bernadette Peters, who's a great American star, Elaine Page, a great English star, um, several others. And last night, one of my donors, gave, who's funding this production in large measure, gave a, a party for the cast. This for her was the great compensation for giving, was getting to spend time with the cast. She loves it. She just loved it. I couldn't be there. I was here, but she was happy, I know. Um, the third reason why people give big amounts typically is because they like prestige. They like their name up in lights. And again, we have to think about non-obnoxious ways to do that, ways that don't affect our art in the least. And then the fourth, and this is an area where I think we could do better, there's a whole group of donors who really give to the arts because they really would like a social life. And if we can create a social life around our organization, coming to performances, special events, meetings, et cetera, and if they can keep that relationship with us going, they start to feel a closeness to us and they really get compensation for their gift. The key is to figure out which of these or which, which of these or multiple of these does any given funder care about, and that you come from, get from listening. What are they looking for? How do I get them to feel closer to my organization? How do I repay them for their gift? Is it, is it letting them sit next to the conductor at a luncheon, or is it because I'm going to give them a lot for their social life, or is it because I'm putting their name and thanking them publicly, or what is it that they need and how do I do that in a smart way? When you do that well, people start to feel, I'm, I'm getting something back, and they start to want to stay with you, and it really is worth the effort, I promise you. It doesn't take that much time, but it does take planning. Rule number 14, we said, find the right solicitor for each donor. Rule number 15, we went through, if your board are excited about your organization and not embarrassed, they are much more likely to, to be supportive. This is one of the reasons I don't like to have antagonistic board meetings. I don't like when people are fighting at board meetings. If, if something's going to be controversial, I tend to talk it through with everybody before the meeting. Because I want my meetings to be fun, because I want people to feel like this organization is going well, and I want their involvement to be happy, and I don't want it to be fraught with tension. So I do everything I can to make my board members have fun in every of their interactions with my organization, and not to feel that board meetings are places for contention. I like to solve the difficult problems before the board meeting, so that people feel like, that was a good meeting. And they go away saying, I would, wouldn't mind my friend being on this board. 
I wouldn't even mind asking him to become involved with us because it's a fun place to be rather than, oh, this is such a hateful place, I can't imagine ever telling anyone about it. And a lot of people feel that way, unfortunately. How many of you do s events, special events, where you charge enough to make money on them? Like as a, a con where someone makes a contribution, they pay a little extra, they make a contribution, you, you make some money on it. You do that, you do that, you do that, few of you do that. It's, it's a modest activity in England, I find. I think it's going to grow. It's not a modest activity in London, by the way. But it's a mod in the six cities I've been, it's been a relatively few organizations that do it. I'd love for you to be thinking about it. I find it's a wonderful way to build your family. You said you do an event? Like a gala? Is a dinner, a performance? What? And, and how many people would come? There was about 350. And how many of those 350 were your best friends before the event? That's about right. It's usually 30% or so. Yeah. And the other two fifty and they're guests, exactly. But that's but they've just done you a favor. Mm -hmm. Now what did you do to follow up with those two hundred and fifty that you didn't know so well? We wrote to them. Yeah, you wrote to them? Okay, good. And did you then follow up with a phone call or did you go see them or did you pick yeah. a few of them? What I would want you to do is to figure out which of those two hundred that you didn't know going in belong on this chart. Mm -hmm. And what we find in the States is that 60 to 70 percent of our new donors come from events as guests of people who brought them. They came, you gave them a wonderful event, they thought, oh, that was fantastic, I like this group, and a few of them then become part of the family. A comment in relation to that, actually, because we used to do a lot of big galas, mm -hmm. but they were incredibly time-consuming for the development team and didn't generate significant return and also what we felt and we've done a lot of work on on sort of evolving our fundraising in the last couple of years is that it didn't reflect the brands and personality of the organization which is very explicitly about this notion of family and inclusivity so we still do events and they are charged for and they make money but they're much more low-key so you get a totally glass of champagne great. and a piece of cake rather than a three-course dinner. That's totally fine. Um, and it's inter but it's interesting how it actually is a much better event, it's much more fun and it, everyone feels so much more comfortable. I uh, want we haven't quite got the follow-up bit quite right yet, but almost. I <laughs> want to do the follow-up, but not, there's no one template for yeah. good events. I'm not trying to say everyone should have the same format. And you want to do one that reflects the spirit of your organization because that's ultimately what you're trying to do mm. is to get people to ex be excited by the spirit of your organization, not the spirit of someone else's organization. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think that's totally fine to do it smaller. There are even events we do call friend-raising events, not fundraising events, where we're just making friends rather than actually asking for money. And that's not a bad thing to do either. It's been quite a shift for our organization to say we need to fundraise on the basis of who we are rather than trying to pretend to be someone else. But it's so crucial yeah. because, yeah. number one, you can't sustain being someone else. Yeah. And number two, you differentiate yourself by being who you are rather than trying to look like everybody else. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And I'm not saying events should have to be big and glitzy, but I do find that if you can allow people in who then bring a few people to you, but the follow-up is the crucial bit. Because if you don't follow up, you've wasted that person sitting in a space. Even if you made five quid off of it, it doesn't make any difference. So the real thing you get from that is the access to a new person who you then can cultivate. Right? Good. 17, you can tell from everything I'm saying, every prospect is precious. 
you don't want to waste one. You don't want to be sloppy. You don't want to be late to the meeting, you, like the way you were late after break today. Um, <laughs> you really want to be prepared for that meeting with a donor because you don't get that many, and you don't get that many shots at one person. And I promise you, you may do a bad job, but the next organization coming in is going to do a better job. And so you're competing. We don't like to think of it that way, but we are competing. And therefore, we have to be really on our A game. Number 18 is one that I think is really important. Don't ask a donor for a gift that's out of proportion to what everyone else is giving you or to your needs as an organization. When I got to Alvin Ailey and we were bankrupt, all my board kept saying to me, ask Bill Cosby for a million dollars. Ask Bill Cosby for a million dollars. Well, it would have looked like ridiculous if I had gone to him and said, Mr. Cosby, by the way, liked the Ailey Company. But if I had called him up and said, would you give us a million dollars? By the way, no one on my board gives even 10,000, but would you give me a million? You know, he would have looked at me like I was a little bit crazy. And I, I would have looked immature, like I want you to solve all my problems. And by the way, if I get in trouble again, I want you to solve them again because you're the only person I'm going to. You know, it's, it's not a good fundraising strategy. I'd rather start smaller amount in proportion to what you get from others and then over time see if you can build someone. That doesn't mean if someone, doesn't w if someone walks up to you and says, here's a million quid, take it. <laughs> but, but, but don't ask for it. I, I just think it's, I think it's immature looking. And again, if we're trying to build confidence of the donor in us, if we look immature, I think it's a problem. Number 19, don't let a donor get off easily. I did say before, if you don't have a project that they'd be interested in, tell them so. But on the other hand, a lot of time donors support other things that could be related to yours. For instance, at the Kansas City Ballet, I had one company who said, well, we're not going to support you because we support the Girl Scouts. And I said, well, it's lovely that you support the Girl Scouts, but Girl Scouts should be coming to the ballet. So let's do this. Why don't we together create a merit badge in for the Girl Scouts and how they get those badges from different areas? So we created a ballet merit badge where the Girl Scouts had, the girls had to do some research into ballet. They came to the performance and they wrote about the performance afterwards and they got their merit badge. And we ended up with 6,000 Girl Scouts coming to the, our little Kansas City Ballet. That's how I filled up my performances. So, so don't let a donor say to you, I only support senior citizens or I only support this. Try and figure out a way if there's a connection between them. Number 20, I've said, don't waste time writing cold call letters. Don't waste the stamps or the stationery and write 1,000 letters that all look identical and put them in the mail and hope the money's going to come back. It so rarely does. And it's getting less and less likely that the money's going to come back in that approach. Number 21, don't use lingo. Talk in English when you talk to donors. Don't talk in arts ease. You know, we tend to talk about things using terms that we use in our field and a lot of times, donors just don't understand what you're talking about. And when they stop understanding what you're talking about, they go off into la-la land and start thinking about what they're going to have for dinner. Don't talk it too philosophically and use words that are not going to be in common parlance. Please, just talk basic English to donors and make sure they understand what you're talking about. And don't refer to artists by their first names. Oh, Harold was a great playwright, wasn't he? Well, they may not know who Harold was or which Harold you're talking about. You know, just let people know. Educate them as you, as you prospect from them. Don't try and s 
um, um, make them feel that you're very sophisticated and therefore they'll give you because they think you're so sophisticated. They're just going to get lost. Mm -hmm. Number 22, we've talked about research your major donors. It's so easy now with online technology. The theme of all of this is captured in 23, 24, and 25, the whole day really. 23, small donors can and do grow into bigger ones. I would so rather start with 20 quid and 10 years later be getting a sizable grant from someone than get a one-time gift. Because part of what this whole process does, I know one starts fundraising thinking I want the money, but also what it does is it creates a wonderful support base for an organization. Of my 30,000 donors, there are whole lots of them who really care about the work we do, who really support me, who are really excited every year when we announce our season, who come to our performances, who, f who I feel so close to because they're so in love with the work we do and they're so wanting me to be successful and my organization to be successful. And when you start to build that base, it really makes an organization feel a little bit less alone out there trying to do its work and much more that you really have people out there who care about what you do and are supporting what you do. It's a very moving process when you have a wonderful base of, of donors. So please, please, please think about that. We, I've said this a hundred times, one more time, don't contact donors only for money. It's not a smart thing to do. And lastly, we use the term development to mean fundraising because we believe that what you're really doing is developing a relationship. And the same way you would develop a relationship with a friend, the same trust, the same honesty, the same forthrightness, the same recognizing you have to be there for them, they're just not there for you. This is what we need to do in fundraising to be successful. Those are my 25 rules. Are there any questions on those? Problems, issues? No one brought up the topic of legacies. Did anyone want to talk about legacies? Yes, let me talk about legacies once and then I'll come to your question. Because this has been an issue in every place. Um, when I came to this country, People thought I was crazy enough to talk at fundraising. When I brought up the whole idea of legacies, they really thought I should be shipped home um, because they thought it was so crazy. Now more people are talking about it. Um, legacy gifts are something that I only approach in a very subtle kind of way. I don't do big ads saying, come, leave us money in your will. I talk about it with my best donors in my once a year finance meetings. And I also do something else. I have a group of my donors who have left us money in their, be in their wills. We, put th we created a group called the Roger Stevens Society. Roger Stevens was the founder of the Kennedy Center. And that society, once a year, has lunch together and comes to a performance. And we put their names in our program. And we say, these are people who've been kind enough to think about us in their estate planning. That itself is advertising that this is a, p a possible function. I believe it's going to happen more in this country, but there's a warning attached to this, which is legacy gifts should be used for extras, for building endowment funds, for building cash reserves, for special building projects, et cetera. Don't balance your books based on legacy funding. There's one very big American arts organization that's in very deep trouble right now because they, every year they balance their books on, because someone died and left them money and then they had the very bad luck that for three years nobody died. <laughs> and, and then they got into deep, deep trouble. So don't use this money. Don't you can't plan on this money coming in. 
even though we call it planned giving, you can't count on it when it's going to come. So just think of it as something extra rather than something you do uh, as your basic work. Did you have a question about that? Bequests are a great, great approach to help building an endowment. One of the things I just want to caution you, and I know endowments are very much the rage here, I just want to be very careful about a fear that I have about endowment fundraising. Okay. If you take too much of this money and you take it out of this cycle for endowment or for a building or for a capital reserve before you're ready as an organization, before this is really robust, you can starve this cycle. So just be careful that you're not taking too much out. And I find a lot of organizations try and do capital work, either for endowment or for a building or for a cash reserve, when they're not really ready for it yet. When I left Alvin Ailey, I left after 1993. After doing all that, after we paid off the deficit, I left. At that point, everyone said to me, it's time to build a building. It's time to build a building. And I said, you're not ready yet. You just started making this work. And fortunately, my successor saw things the same way, waited 10 years. And by the time they built their building, which is the largest dedicated dance building in the world now, they did it with no negative impact because they had such a developed cycle. Their family was so large, they could divert some of this money to building a building. So just be careful. Okay. Yes. Um, my question comes from the perspective of um, a receiving house rather than a producing theater. Yes. And I think it's really interesting what you're talking about, the institutional marketing, because obviously we're spreading a very broad message. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about, are there tailored messages that you give to people? Do you always give the same broad message? How, how do you manage that? I'm, by the way, mostly a receiving house as well. I'm not exclusively, but I'm mostly a receiving house. And I believe the, the, the word that we need to think about is the word curator. I believe in the work we bring and show is there a way for us to curate it and put it together in packages that look exciting and therefore, like our India Festival, we didn't create any of the art for the India Festival, but we got the credit for it because we put it together. And I think receiving houses need to do that more. No, not everyone has to get the same message. And not every message is received through the press or by something big. It can be done one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm, I believe, in fact, arts organizations tend to put the spotlight too much just on their revenue-producing options and not on some of the things that you also I do. For example, education programs. A lot of receiving houses have an education program. I bet you have an education program, right? Yeah. Yep. It's very important that we put our spotlight in our institutional marketing on our education, not just on our earned income. There's many more funders out there who fund education than fund performance. And when we only put our focus on one part of who we are, we're limiting the size of our family. So absolutely, I work on lots of different messages they're all consistent. I'm not lying to anybody, but I focus on different parts of what we do to different audiences. Absolutely. Yes, one last question. Um, I have a question which relates to um, that article on the one there for different types of supporters. Yes. Um, I um, have had quite a large grant for the art for a big project, which is fantastic, but need to raise obviously some more money. And um, I've just made an approach to um, a trust and asked for really quite a small amount of money. And I, I'm conscious that when they see, you know, we've had half a million pounds pretty much from the Arts Council for this project and I'm asking them for £6,000, it seems very small in comparison um, and I've tried to tailor it so it's for a very specific, tangible thing. But I kind of, I'm a little bit worried that they'll say they don't need that money. Why are they asking for that when they, do you sort of mean? That happens <laughs> sometimes. 
it does happen sometimes that someone will say, you're doing so well, why do you need to be raised? Either the project's doing so well or the whole organization's doing so well. That's when we have to start educating our donors. We are in transition in this country. And there is education to be done about you want to support the best, not just, and the ones who are doing well, not just the ones who are the neediest. Yeah, and so. But I think s segmenting out the project, as you said you've done, and say it's for a particular thing that's really, and showing why that's beneficial, I think it's the best you can do. I wish you could have a com conversation with them. Is there any way to have a conversation with them? No, I did actually have a conversation with them, but she thought her whole thing was, it's really up to the trustees to get to the trustees. Okay, and do we have a list of the trustees? <laughs> okay, get a list. That's easy. That's public information. See who knows the trustees. Seriously, it's, it's something that too few organizations do. And if you or one of your board members or someone in your family knows one of the trustees, then you can at least have a good conversation about that exact issue. Thank you. Right. Let me just conclude today by saying um, one resource that we have, if you're interested in the areas that we've been talking about, is a website we started called Arts Manager. Org. It costs nothing to, to, to become a member of Arts Matters. You just give your, your email address just so we can keep stay in contact. But if you're interested, come on that. On there we have some videos that we've made that I've made about a lot of the different topics that we've been talking about today. I have a weekly blog that I write in Huffington Post that's posted on this website. But also there's a book I wrote on writing a strategic plan for arts organizations, about a 150-page book. It's free online. It's right there. You just push a button and there it is. So there's a lot of information on this website. You might find that useful. Also, the Kennedy Center runs two fellowship programs to train arts managers. If you or people you know are looking to bolster their skills, come to our website, kennedy-center, spelt the American way, dot O-R-G. And this is a hyphen, not an underscore. And um, we have two fellowship programs. One is a fellowship program where you study with us from September through May. One is a program where you come the month of July three years in a row. Um, both programs accept people from this country. Um, we pay all the expenses. It costs you exactly nothing to apply or to come. It's a very simple application. If you're interested in learning more, please think about that. And finally, if you, if you need some help and you want to ask me some questions, things pop up in your mind after this session, or you're trying something that's not working, just feel free to email me at mmkaiser at kennedy-center.org. Two M's, not one. If we do one M, it'll accept it, but I will never see it. So please do two M's, kaiser at kennedy-center.org. Feel free to email me. Um, tell me about a success or a failure or a problem or ask a question. Happy to receive it. I will get back to you, I promise. I've really enjoyed today's session. Thank you very, very much. Um, for those of you who want to look at this list of foundations and such and, and, and resources, it's up here. Otherwise, thank you so much for your attention. <laughs>